Thank you. Glad to uh, be with you. The uh, text uh, for the message is in Acts chapter 26. And uh, uh, some of you were uh, in India, in Indy at Northside uh, last week. And uh, uh, I, I preached from uh, Acts 26, but this is a little different this morning. So a little heads up on that. Uh, Acts 26, verses 1 through 8. Acts 26, verses 1 through 8. Uh, Hear God's word. Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded uh, to make his defense. In regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all the customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So then, all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, from which Uh, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation at Jerusalem. Since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. And now I am standing trial uh, trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers the promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O King, I am being accused by the Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you if God does raise the dead? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this your word. And we pray that as we have just a short time to look into it this morning, that you'd be pleased to bless us and strengthen us, open our hearts to an understanding of the truth of your word, and may it be, Father, that in the end we reckon with the fact that truly it is you, Lord Jesus, Uh, the risen Christ uh, with whom we have to do. And uh, uh, first of all, uh, that this is the case. Uh, So bless us and strengthen us and help us uh, in this, we pray, in the good name of Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen. Okay, listen carefully. Are you with me? If anyone comes to you uh, talking about uh, Christian precepts, you ought to be very nervous. Christianity, first of all, has to do with a person and not precepts. And if you move away from the person to the precepts, 
you may be forsaking the faith. Robert Godfrey, uh, the former president of uh, Westminster Seminary in California, uh, and uh, presently the uh, chairman of the board of Ligonier Ministries, uh, made this statement in a church history lecture uh, on the Enlightenment. And I, I think he's correct that if you put the precepts of Christianity before the risen Christ, you put the cart before the horse. And you're in danger of missing the main message. Uh, Our text uh, this morning in uh, Acts chapter 26 and verses 1 through 8 is a part of Paul's defense before King Agrippa. And uh, in this uh, little piece of the defense... Uh, The point that uh, you and I need to get uh, is simply this, that you, you and I need to put Christ, the risen Christ, first. And when we do that, and when we teach our children to do that, what will happen is a relish for Christian principles and the life principles that Christ teaches will come along. Put Christ first, the risen Christ first, and a relish for Christian principles will follow. Paul finds himself in Caesarea, which is a city by the seashore, the Mediterranean Sea. And he's already appealed to Caesar. And the governor, who is Portius Festus, has just been appointed. And Festus is in a little bit of a quandary because he has to send Paul to Caesar... Uh, but he doesn't know what to put in the indictment <laughs> against uh, Paul. And here comes King Agrippa from uh, Caesarea Philippi, north of uh, the Sea of Galilee, down to Caesarea to congratulate uh, Festus on his becoming governor. And uh, so Festus says, okay, uh, I think uh, uh, you may be able to help me out, Agrippa, And I'll have uh, this man, Paul, come uh, before us, and you can hear him, and I can get some insight on what to write uh, to uh, to Caesar uh, when he uh, goes to Caesar and uh, makes his appeal uh, before the emperor. And uh, so this is the background for the story as we uh, come into uh, verses 1 through 3 in Acts 26. Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. In regard to 
All the things which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all the customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you, listen to me patiently. Uh, Here is King Agrippa, and uh, Paul has this opportunity to uh, stand before him. And uh, uh, Paul uh, is making a defense And as I've said before, this is actually a formal defense of the faith that Paul is making before King Agrippa. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, people like us are encouraged to always be ready to make a defense for the hope that is within us. And so here Paul is making a defense. Uh, before uh, King Agrippa. And uh, I would say, uh, I think you would agree with me in this, if you're always be, uh, to be prepared to make a defense, it's, it would be wise to get ready to make a defense, <laughs> uh, to prepare yourself to make a defense. Uh, in other words, to, to rehearse a testimony, as it were, uh, so that you can uh, speak to others about Christ. And uh, if you read the whole defense that the Apostle makes, Uh, In Acts chapter 26, verses 1 through uh, 23, it doesn't take very long to read through this. Maybe uh, three, four uh, minutes, depending upon uh, how you read it. And uh, so I would suggest uh, that if if you're going to be ready to make a defense, make a little preparation and uh, prepare to make a uh, three or four minute uh, presentation uh, that you can uh, give over a cup of coffee as you uh, talk to individuals, and uh, they may ask you about the hope that is within you. Now, this is what, uh, what's recorded for us uh, in the book of Acts here. Uh, so we go on then to see how uh, Paul, after a short introduction, uh, enters into uh, this defense of the faith, uh, verses uh, 4 and 5. Uh, So then, all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation at Jerusalem. Uh, Since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify that I lived uh, as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of my religion. Uh, uh, Paul says uh, uh, in the beginning of his defense uh, Uh, Or, I should say, he relates a little bit of his background. Uh, He tells us uh, a little bit of his uh, personal story. Uh, We get just a a little snippet of it here. And he tells us that uh, he was uh, born as a Jew, he grew up as a Jew, and uh, early on in his youth he was uh, sent to Jerusalem. And we learn in Acts chapter 22 that he studied under uh, Gamaliel, one of the leading Uh, teachers of the Jews of the time. Uh, In uh, Acts chapter 5, we meet uh, Gamaliel, who uh, was a member of the Sanhedrin, and when uh, Peter and other apostles were uh, arrested for preaching Christ uh, and uh, stood before the Sanhedrin, uh, Gamaliel stood up and said, wait a minute, Uh, you should be careful about how you move against Uh, these men, uh, because uh, if uh, they are not doing a work of God, uh, the uh, 
work that they are doing will uh, simply dissolve and it will come to no consequence. Uh, But if they are following uh, the ways of God and are uh, preaching the truth of God, then you may uh, find yourselves fighting against God himself. And uh, so this uh, same Gamaliel is the individual who uh, became uh, Paul's mentor and taught him uh, the faith uh, that uh, the faith of the Jews. It seems that Paul didn't exactly follow uh, the uh, path of uh, Gamaliel here because uh, Paul was uh, very strident in his uh, effort uh, to wipe out the Christian faith. Uh, But at any rate, Uh, This leading teacher of the Jews, who even in the Sanhedrin by the other rabbis was called master, uh, uh, became uh, the teacher of the apostle. And uh, as he says in uh, verse 5, I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. Uh, The sect of the Pharisees were considered the strict sect, uh, not only because they interpreted uh, the scriptures uh, as they were written. We, we would say in a more literal sense, uh, they interpreted the scriptures in this more literal sense. They also uh, sought to apply the scriptures and to uh, uh, teach the scriptures uh, as they applied to various areas of life. And uh, they, come, they came to have uh, many stipulations Uh, that they recorded. For example, uh, when it came to the fourth commandment, uh, they had uh, a number of uh, uh, stipulations that they uh, uh, saw came out of uh, the commandment, and uh, they began to teach uh, these uh, stipulations with regard to keeping the Sabbath as though uh, their words were equal with the Word of God. Uh, Of course, this is a great danger Uh, to think that our own personal interpretations of Scripture uh, are on the level of the Word of God. I've even seen pastors who have stood in the pulpit and and said words to this effect, if you don't obey my words, you're disobeying God. Well, I would never uh, suppose that uh, my words and uh, a sermon that I preach would be on the level of Scripture. Uh, That would be heretical uh, to the nth degree. But this was the problem that the Pharisees had. And you see, uh, they fell in the trap. They fell in this trap that I alluded to earlier, that the precepts that they were teaching were put on the forefront. And the God of the Bible uh, rather took a back seat. And Jesus criticized them in this way, saying, you tithe mint and dill and cumin. You have lots of laws with regard to tithing. But what you do is you set aside the Word of God for your own traditions. You set up the precepts and you follow them, but you put them before the God of the Bible. It's easy for you and me to fall into this same trap, friends. And we should be wary of this. We're all interested in, I think this is the case, in properly following the precepts, the life 
changing precepts, we might say. The life teachings of Jesus. But if you divorce those life teachings of Jesus from the risen Christ, As I said earlier, you put the cart before the horse. It's the risen Christ which must come first. Note how Paul goes on now. He says in verse 6, And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. The promise to which the twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O King, I am being accused by the Jews. Verse 6 again. And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise. Uh, The promise is the promise of the Messiah. And we first hear that promise in uh, Genesis chapter 3 and in verse 15 where God speaks to Satan. And God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you, devil, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you will bruise him on the heel. And of course, the seed of the woman is Jesus Christ. The first gospel promise as we understand it. And that promise is transmitted to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. In summary form, it sounds like this, given to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. In you and in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Paul picks this up in Galatians and he says, notice, notice that God does not say seeds, plural, but seed, speaking of one, and that seed is Christ. The Pharisees believed in the promises of God. The Pharisees understood these promises and they looked forward to the coming of the promised one. And the Pharisees believed in the life which was to come. They believed in the resurrection of the dead. They did indeed believe these things. And now Paul says, amazingly enough, I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made to our fathers. Well, there's another, there's another word here that we need to tackle. The hope of the promise. What is the hope of the promise? The hope is the hope of the resurrection. 
Uh, if you go back to uh, Acts chapter uh, 24, uh, just a couple of verses there in Acts chapter 24, verses 14 and 15, uh, Paul is, is standing before a previous uh, Roman uh, governor, Felix. And he says in verse 14, But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve God, the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and written in the prophets. Uh, you see, I believe the things that are written in the law, and I believe the things that are written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. The resurrection, the hope of the resurrection. Uh, but you see, it, it's easy for the Pharisees uh, in their circumstance to get off balance and to put the precepts uh, that they taught in their traditions ahead of what God was really up to. And so, Paul finds himself on trial for the hope of the promise made to our fathers, the promise to which our tribes, our twelve tribes, hope to attain. Just a little caveat, it's kind of interesting that Paul talks about the twelve tribes of Israel. And the commentators generally agree that... Uh, this idea of 11 lost tribes is a spurious notion. <laughs> Paul uh, does not hold uh, to that kind of idea. The promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day, and for this hope, O King, I am being accused by the Jews. They hope to attain what? The resurrection from the dead. But the problem which arises in their own teaching, in their own path, is putting the precepts first. And so they tend to look at themselves and their own obedience as the way in which they will attain that future life and attain the resurrection from the dead. But Paul actually is getting a little bit more specific than the general idea of the resurrection from the dead in this text. When we read the text... Uh, we usually don't realize that uh, what uh, Dr. Luke is doing as he uh, writes and makes this presentation is that he's giving us a summary of what the Apostle says before King Agrippa. Uh, we don't get the whole thing. We get the gist of the matter. We get the summary. We get uh, the main points. And it's very likely that in the background, the Apostle Paul has here not simply the general idea of the resurrection of the dead, 
but the more specific teaching and notion and idea and fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so he asks this rhetorical question. Turning to the general audience and not simply to King Agrippa. Why is it considered incredible among you if if God does raise the dead? Why is it considered incredible among you if God does raise the dead? You know, it's pretty easy for us to believe in eternal life and believe in a resurrection that's going to come down the road in a general sense. But we get, when we get to the more specific truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the emphasis shifts, does it not? And we want evidence. We want to see more specifically how it is that God raised up this man from the dead. And the empty tomb is not sufficient evidence for us. This last Saturday there was an op-ed or an essay in the Wall Street Journal and Uh, If you read that newspaper, this is a a striking uh, op-ed. It's it's a striking essay. And the burden of the essay is simply this. How is it that a ragtag band of followers who took Jesus Christ seriously started a movement that so profoundly affected in the first, second, and third centuries the Roman Empire so that a quarter to a half of the population of the Roman Empire became professing Christians. How is that possible? Some would like to think that it was through the argumentation presented by these followers of Jesus Christ. But in reality, that's not the case. The reason the lives of these men were so dramatically changed and the lives of so many others 
were so dramatically changed was that they saw the risen Christ. It was because of the resurrection of the Christ. And even today, when we number our days and look at the calendar, how do we reckon time? By Jesus Christ. The time before Christ and the time after Christ. And even those who deny Christ and call this present age the common era speak of the time before the common era. And how is that differentiation made? By the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's unavoidable. Why is it considered incredible that God should raise the dead? The God who created the universe. The God who put you and me in this world. The God who enabled the likes of you and me to reproduce and to bring children into this world. Why, when you think about this great God of all, why should you consider it incredible that God should raise the dead? No by the testimony of so many who have gone before us, we say, yes, Jesus Christ lives and Jesus Christ reigns. I love the fact in 1 Corinthians 15 that the Apostle Paul speaks about the fact that Jesus Christ first appeared to the twelve. And that he appeared to Paul as one untimely born. And then he adds that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Some of whom, he says, are asleep. Some of whom have died. But guess what? You can go speak to the rest of them. And confirm the fact that they saw the risen Lord. Why did Jesus Christ become the hinge of history? Why does time revolve around Him? Because He is the one who came into the world and died and lives again. He is the risen Christ. And if you're interested in following Christian principles, 
which I'm sure you are. Focus first upon Jesus Christ. Teach your children to love Jesus Christ and a relish for Christian principles will then come along. That's putting things in the proper order and giving the person, Jesus Christ, the proper priority. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the Lord whom you sent into the world, even Jesus Christ our Savior. Thank you for the fact that he did live in Galilee and in Judea. He walked those dusty roads. Thank you that he taught. Thank you that he exemplified his own teachings in his life in this world. Thank you that he died an agonizing death on the cross. And that he did so for the likes of us. Paying the penalty due to us for our sins. And thank you that to authenticate the value of that death on the cross, that he rose again in splendor. Thank you, as the book of Acts says, that he displayed himself by many infallible proofs. And thank you that he visibly ascended into heaven that he now sits at your right hand. And thank you, Father, that from that position he pours out his Holy Spirit and causes the likes of us to be born again on the basis of and through the power of His resurrection. And so, Father, as we read the pages of Scripture, help us to see more and more who Jesus is and what He has done. And as a result, Father, grant us grace. As a result, we pray, As a result, give us grace to relish His teachings and His life principles. Bless us to this end, we ask, in His good name. Amen.